Father, we thank you for this time that we have to gather here this morning and just continue to worship you as we study your word. And we pray that as we read um, from scripture today, that you would make this real to us, that you would make it alive to us, that you'd make us aware of the work of your spirit in our lives, changing us, guiding us, directing us, and convicting us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are continuing on in our series, Choosing Jesus. And in this series, we've been talking about what does it look like to choose Jesus, to choose Jesus every day, to choose to be obedient to him, to choose to follow him. And this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. Luke chapter 9, 51 to 62. And as you're finding that in your Bibles, I want to share with you just a big thank you uh, from the Excel class over at Benetto. Um, so we put out a request a couple weeks ago asking for yarn, knitting supplies, sewing supplies. And that came about as I was uh, just in the school doing open gym. Miss Hoy, who teaches the Excel class there, some kids who need some extra support, came up to me and she said, you work at a church, right? And I said, yeah. Uh, and she said, I was wondering if you guys could help us. We need some yarn. We did some activities with our class. There's about five kids in that class. Most of them are boys. And we did some sewing before the Christmas break, and they loved it. Uh, and it helped keep their attention. And so I really want to get some knitting supplies, some sewing supplies. I already buy them snacks out of my own pocket, so I, I can't go and buy knitting supplies and sewing supplies. Do you think your church can help? And you did. Uh, I brought over so much stuff that she ended up giving it to other classes as well. Um, and she said it's been incredible. The best mornings they've ever had just using some of the stuff you've brought. And so thank you for meeting the needs of, of our neighbors who are asking for help. And um, thank you for showing them that coming to a church was the right place to go with their needs. That's a, that's a cool thing for us in this neighborhood. Um, so... Thank you. Also, please stop giving me stuff, because we're good. Uh, if I need more, I'll let you know. Um, but yeah, this morning, Luke chapter 9, 51 to 62. Um, if we go to the next slide here, uh, I have a picture from The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis's final book in the Chronicles of Narnia. And he begins this story with Puzzle the donkey and Shift the ape. And they come across this lion skin. And Shift the Ape con convinces Puzzle to put that lion skin on. To pretend that he is a lion, and not just any lion. What they're going to do is pretend that this is Aslan. Aslan returns so that they can exploit people, manipulate people into believing that the great lion has returned. And when Lewis wrote this story, his inspiration here was Aesop's fable of the donkey in the lion skin. And as a youth pastor, I feel like I have to say donkey and not the actual word because you'll assume I'm immature. Um, so we'll stick with donkey today. But the donkey in the lion skin, this, this story from Aesop of a donkey who comes across a lion skin left behind by a hunter. And he puts on that lion skin and he scares all of the animals away. All of the scary animals that would attack the donkey are scared away because now they believe that it's a lion. And in the donkey's excitement, he lets out a huge bray. And a fox hears it and comes back and says, if you'd kept your mouth shut, 
I would have thought you were lying, but now I know you're really a donkey. And the idea here, if you go to the next slide, is Aesop's moral is this. A fool may deceive by his dress and appearance, but his words will soon show what he really is. You can't hide who you are. You can pretend to be something you're not, but at some point, your words, your actions, your life are going to shine through. And I think this is an important lesson for us who are Christians here today. Do we say we are disciples, but are really just donkeys dressed as a lion? Or are we truly followers of Jesus? I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a donkey dressed as a lion. I want to become like the true lion. I want to become like Jesus. I want to be a true disciple, not someone who says they are a disciple, but really, I have not changed. And so as we go through this passage here today in Luke chapter 9, what we're going to learn here is what is a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? How can we know that we are true disciples? And how can we make sure that we are not fools dressing ourselves as followers of Jesus, but really are not anything like him? And so as we go through this passage today, there's going to be just a couple things that I want to point out that will help us in genuinely being disciples, genuinely being people who follow Jesus. The first thing we're going to see here is being a disciple means being uncomfortably welcoming. Now, I want to be clear. This is not me saying we have to be awkward. We don't want to make the other people uncomfortable. That's not what we're trying to do. If being a disciple was about being uh, awkward, I would be the greatest disciple of all time. Uh, but that's not what this is about. Being a disciple means being uncomfortably welcoming, meaning we are uncomfortable. We are allowing ourselves to be uncomfortable to welcome in more people. We want to be uncomfortable and broaden our invitation for people to come and hear the good news. See, when we go through this passage, starting in verse 51, this is what we read. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Right away, as readers, we need to notice that there is a change happening here. This is Jesus, talking about Jesus. And it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That idea of setting his face to go towards Jerusalem means there's a determination in what Jesus is doing now. There is a sense of mission for Jesus now. Luke, in his writing, is letting us know there's a shift in what Jesus is doing here. It started with, with Jesus coming down in the incarnation and letting people know who he is, giving people a sight of the Son of God, the Messiah, healing and teaching and, and helping those who are in need. And now here, in chapter 9, there's a shift to salvation is coming. The cross is before me. Things are going to become more urgent now. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus is talking to his disciples about how he's going to suffer and die. And here in 51, we have, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That concept of the days drew near for him to be taken up is, is talking about the ascension. But you don't get to the ascension 
without going through the cross first. He is going to Jerusalem to die. He is going to Jerusalem to give up his life. He is going to Jerusalem to take on the sin of the world so that anyone who would believe in him would be set free from sin. He is going to face death so that anyone who believes in him will not have to face death, but can follow him in his resurrection into true life and awaits as he's ascended for him to return and bring them into the full kingdom of God. This is about salvation. This is about the cross. This is about the resurrection. This is about the ascension. To, to quote Bob Dylan here, the times they are a-changing. This is a shift in focus, a shift in tone. And Jesus is headed towards the cross so that he can bring salvation. So right away, you can see what Jesus is saying here, just through his tone, just through his direction. This is not about being comfortable. This is about the kingdom. And we continue reading in, in verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans, a village of the Samaritans, to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. The time has come. Salvation is at hand. He's headed to the cross. He's headed to provide salvation for those who would believe. He's going from Galilee to Jerusalem, and he stops in Samaria. This is incredibly important. Uh, I have a map I'll show you that would show you from the different paths you could take to get from Galilee to Jerusalem. Does this work? Yes. Oh, wait, I lost it there. So he's up here in Galilee. And usually what people would do to get to Jerusalem, which is all the way down here, is they would come down, and then they would cross over the Jordan, go around, and then come through, right? Uh, I'll help you over here, too, because I can now. The best $30 I've ever spent. Uh, in Galilee, normally you'd come down, and you'd follow this red path across. And the reason you would do that is because it was safer. It was longer, but it was safer. Because you don't have to go through Samaria if you go around the Transjordan. But instead, what Jesus chooses to do, intentionally, as he's making his trip and his face is set towards Jerusalem, is he goes just straight down into Samaria. Right? He's on his trip. Salvation is at hand, and he goes straight to Samaria. The first place he goes to is Samaria. And this is important for us to understand what Jesus is doing here. And in order to do that, we need to know who are the Samaritans. Who are the Samaritans? That is our question here. The Samaritans were the enemies of the Jewish people. They weren't quite Gentiles because they were more connected than the Gentiles. They actually started out of the people of God and then rebelled and went away. Uh, Daryl L. Bach, in his commentary, writes this. The journey starts with Jesus expanding his ministry into Samaritan territory. To Jews, this ethnic group was, were traitors, a collection of half-breeds. The name came from the capital of the separatist northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria, in a rule founded by Omri. 
the Samaritans intermarried with the pagan nations and were thus seen as unfaithful to the nation of Israel. It's not only did they not know God, in the eyes of the Jewish people, they knew God turned, his back, turned their backs on him and started to worship idols. Uh, in Acts 16, or sorry, in 1 Kings 16, we have the account of Samaria starting. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel, the northern separatist kingdom. And he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name Shemer, the owner of the hill. This is the foundation of Samaria. The separatist, idol-worshipping northern kingdom who rebelled against God found this land, made it their capital. The, the text goes on to say, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he worked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and in the sins that, uh, that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. This is the start of Samaria, but it continues. The northern kingdom is punished by God for their idol worship, for their rebellion against him. They refuse to travel all the way down to Jerusalem, and so they set up their own temples in the northern kingdom and worshiped uh, statues of golden calves, which if they had read their Bibles from Exodus, they would have known that was probably a bad idea. But they did this. They stopped caring about the poor and the oppressed, and so God sent the Assyrians to wipe them out, take them over, pull the people out of their land. And so the people in the northern kingdom are brought out into Assyria. And then after the Assyrians, the Babylonians take over, and they take over all of Assyria, and they take the the southern kingdom of Judah as well. And all of the people are brought to Babylon. And there, they're, they're taught new ideas, new worldviews, new religions. They're forced to change the way they live, And then finally, through the Persians, God brings peace to his people and allows them to go back home to rebuild the temple in Judah. And the Samaritans go back to Samaria, but they have intermarried with all of the other people that they are around, predominantly the Assyrians. And they choose to build a temple for themselves. If you go to the next slide, not in Jerusalem, but right in the middle here at Mount Gerizim. And to make things worse, the Samaritans would teach everyone who would listen that they were the true people of God. That actually the Israelites got it wrong. The Samaritans are the chosen people of God. And so if you want to know God and worship God and follow God, you need to follow the Samaritans. And so the Jewish people believed that they were, uh, that the Samaritans were, were idol worshipers, that they were rebellions, rebellious against God, and they were leading people astray. And the Samaritans believed that the Jewish people were liars, that they were tricking people, and both people believed that they were worshiping God in the true way. And so they would fight. And things got to a a major breaking point in about 111, 112 BC, when the high priest in Israel, John uh, Hyrcanus, goes to Mount Gerizim 
and destroys the Samaritan temple to force people in Samaria to go and worship in Jerusalem. And from that time on, things went from we disagree, we think you're liars and cheaters, we think you're idol worshipers, to we now hate each other and there will be blood. At the time when Jesus makes this travel to Samaria, it wasn't uncommon for Jewish people from that northern part of Israel in Galilee to go through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem. And what Josephus, who is an ancient Jewish historian, tells us is that it wasn't uncommon for Samaritans to kill Jewish people when they were staying there because they believed that going to Jerusalem was wrong. In fact, what you see here is that the Samaritans refuse Jesus. They reject Jesus because he's going to Jerusalem. Because he knows that the place where God has made his home is in the temple, not on Mount Gerizim. Because he knows that where God's spirit actually dwells is with the people, not on a mountain. Because he's going as the son of God, fully God himself, to bring salvation to the people by going to Jerusalem to die. It was a dangerous thing that Jesus did to stop in Samaria, but the reason he did was to show the Samaritans that they could have salvation too. It was important to Jesus to go and stop in this place where no Jewish person would, would rationally want to stay to bring the gospel to these people. Jesus brings his disciples with him into this uncomfortable position to show that he loves the Samaritans as much as he loves the Jewish people, and he loves the Gentiles as much as he loves everybody else. With Jesus, what you see here is he broadens the invitation. The Jewish people believed that the invitation to follow God was only for them, and in order to follow God, you would have to become one of them. And Jesus goes and he broadens it and says, God created you and loved you, and I'm going to Jerusalem for you, and I want you to hear that message. But they reject him. And in their rejection, what we read in, in verse 54 is the disciples aren't a big fan of this. The disciples see this rejection, and it says, When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Possibly an overreaction. Although, Elijah did rain fire down in that very region in 2 Kings 1. So not unheard of. And I think it's important to understand what's going through those disciples' heads. Yes, James and John are the sons of thunder, and they maybe are a little irrational at times. But really, what they see here is these people are unsafe, they're not interested, and they're really hard to share God's word with. And so it's really just a waste of time to be here trying to convince them to be something that they're not and they're never going to be. And so let's just hand them over to the destruction that's waiting for them without the salvation of the Messiah given to them. It's not worth it. It's not worth the time. It's not worth the energy. 
It's unsafe and uncomfortable. Hand them over to destruction. Let's move on and go somewhere else. Maybe where things are more fruitful. They are uncomfortable with the cost of sharing Jesus with the Samaritans around them. Too hard, too difficult, not worth it. And we might say, wow, that is a big reaction. Bring fire down on these people. But us choosing not to share the gospel with people is the exact same thing as saying bring fire down on them right now. You're choosing to reject, move on, leave for destruction. And so we need to be careful not to judge these men, but to say, what are the areas where I'm in danger of having that same reaction of let's just allow God to do what God's going to do here and say they can deal with their destruction and their ways because they're too hard to work with. You see, Jesus' reaction to this is that he actually rebukes his disciples. The Samaritans have rejected him, but he rebukes the disciples. In verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So this is incredibly important for us to see here. Jesus is far more patient than we could ever be when it comes to sharing about the kingdom of God. Far more patient. He's willing to give these people time. He's willing to allow them to hear the message again and again and again. He's willing to allow them to reject him in one moment saying, I'm not done with you yet. I'm still at work in you. He's willing to sit there in the uncomfortability of being around these people who seem so far from God and he sits there and says, I know that you need this message, and so I'm going to come back, and I'm going to send my disciples back. He's not intimidated by the difficulty of sharing the gospel in a difficult situation. He's not afraid of the uncomfortability of that, that, that group of people around him. In fact, what you see when you look at Jesus over and over and over again, what you see is Jesus is quite comfortable with the uncomfortable. He's more than willing to sit in a room of tax collectors and sinners. Imagine the stories and the words Jesus would have heard. He was quite willing to sit in that situation and have people look at him and say, you're wasting your time with those people. And Jesus said, I'm not. I'm at work in these people. He was willing to sit there and have people say, how can you associate with those people? They are too far gone. And Jesus said, they're not. Nobody's too far gone. I've set my face toward Jerusalem for these people. Over and over again, Jesus embraces the uncomfortability of sharing the gospel with the people least likely to respond, the people who seem the furthest from God. And what great news that Jesus is the one who saves and not us and not his disciples. Because these disciples were willing to rain fire down on the Samaritans in this moment. They said, it's useless. It's time to move on. But if you continue reading through Luke, what you're going to find is when Jesus wants to give the example of a loving person who is a good neighbor 
And when he says neighbor, he means one of the people of God. He doesn't point to the priest or the Levite. He points to the Samaritan. And then in Luke 17, when Jesus heals ten lepers, it's the Samaritan who comes back and falls at the feet of Jesus and worships. And all of a sudden you're starting to see, well, God is doing something in that group of people. Jesus is at work saving those people who couldn't be saved. Then you go to Acts chapter 8, and you see that Jesus didn't allow his people to give up on the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 8, you have whole villages of Samaritans turning and being baptized and hearing the word of God. Even a sorcerer, first through Philip and then Peter and John. John, the very guy who said, let's rain fire down on them, is now baptizing them. What an incredible story of what God is doing in people's lives. We, who are disciples, need to become uncomfortable with inviting people in. It's scary and it's intimidating. But God is at work, and if we want to join him in that journey, if we want to make sure we're not donkeys pretending to be like the lion, but actually becoming like the lion, we need to become like Jesus and get to work in those scary situations. One of the things I love about what Jesus does here is you can tell that what he's doing is not just for the Samaritans. Yes, he's bringing his message to them. Yes, in Acts 1, what we're going to see is we're called to preach to all of the ends of the earth. And what is one of the regions named in there? Samaria. Yes, he's bringing the gospel news. He's preaching the kingdom of God in Samaria. But he's also teaching the disciples that being a disciple is not just about knowing who Jesus is. Being a disciple is not just knowing what the Bible says. Being a disciple means becoming like Christ. And so he goes to Samaria to further his kingdom and also to teach the disciples a lesson. There is nobody too far from God that Jesus can't reach. There is nobody too lost that Jesus can't find. There is nobody too scary, too intimidating that we shouldn't be welcoming in and sharing the gospel with. And as somebody who works in youth ministry, one of the things we want to do is teach our children how to be disciples. Not just to know who Jesus is, but how to actively become like him. And we have an opportunity to do that by bringing people in and loving them and showing our people Jesus cared for these people, and so we do too. Jesus shared the gospel with all of these people, and so we do too. It's not just about us growing in knowledge, but us growing in our experience of becoming like Christ and sharing the gospel everywhere we go, no matter how intimidating it is. And so what we see here is we need to become like Jesus and get comfortable with being uncomfortable and welcoming in those who are hard to welcome in, and trusting that Jesus is at work in every single person we meet, no matter what our initial reaction is. He's incredibly patient with who he invites in. He's incredibly broad with who he invites in. But as we keep reading, we're going to see there's an urgency that follows this. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and the second thing we see here is being a disciple means being unwavering in following Jesus. 
being unwavering in following Jesus. There's a, a sense of urgency. The time is coming. The kingdom is at hand. We need to go. As, as they leave that village, we see in verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds, have the air, uh, have, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So they're walking, and somebody sees Jesus and walks up to him and says, I will follow you anywhere. And you can imagine what this person was thinking. Here's Jesus. The story of him has become quite large. He's healed people. He's done miracles. He's teaching like no one has ever taught. I can be a part of that. I love what Jesus is doing. It sounds exciting. It sounds prestigious. I want to be a part of that. I'll follow him anywhere. Jesus looks at this person and says, you have no idea what you're asking for. You think following me is comfortable, beneficial. You think there's a status to come along with this. Following me is incredibly beneficial, Jesus says, but not in the ways that you think. The, the idea here of foxes have holes and, and birds have nests and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head is the idea that Jesus didn't have a home. The place that he called home rejected him. He was a stranger everywhere he went. Uh, this was a saying that was often used by soldiers at that time. The idea here is following me is, is not a life of luxury. It's more like being a soldier in, in the worst war that's going on, the spiritual war. Following me means you're never going to be comfortable. Following me means that you're never going to have a place where you, you fit in. Following Jesus is always going to be different. It's always going to be against the culture. It means work. Uh, Daryl Bach, again, his words are, are this. A disciple of Jesus must realize that following him means living as a stranger in the world. It means becoming an alien. You're never at rest anywhere. You'll never fit in, in anywhere because your home is not here. Your home is waiting for you, being prepared for you. And so following Jesus means it's always going to be uncomfortable. There's always going to be pushback. I remember um, in high school, I'd been a Christian for a couple of years, um, and I was friends with a lot of band kids, I was friends with a lot of drama kids, I was friends with a lot of kids in the arts. And at that time, and, and still very much today, the arts aren't always the most welcoming of Christ. I remember um, a friend of ours had, had passed away, and uh, one of the bands wrote a song about this experience, because one of the stories that was told at the funeral was that this, this, this boy had accepted Christ near the end of his life, and our friends were so angry at that idea, they wrote a song, the words in it were literally, Christ is not your savior. And I remember sitting there and being like, wow, you guys don't like what I believe in. This is incredibly awkward right now. I remember one of my first friends I told that I was a Christian coming up to me sniffing me and being like, oh, you smell like a Christian now. And I was like, I don't even know what that means, but it's offensive. Um, and so I told him he was on the dark side and the light side always wins. But um, 
part of being a Christian means that it's never going to be comfortable. It's, you're never going to be at home in this world because this is not your home. You are going to your home. And so he challenges this man. And, and often when I work with teens, this is something I find, is that a lot of people are comfortable with some of the ideas of Christ. A lot of teens love the idea of a loving community. A lot of teens love the idea of a God who loves them. But the idea of their life has to change is not as inviting. The idea that they're now going to stand out is what gets uncomfortable for them. And Jesus here is warning this person, it's not all lovey-dovey here. It's hard. Your life is going to change and you're never going to be at home. And if you want to follow me, you need to know that. And so they continue down the road. And this time, Jesus sees somebody. It says, verse 59, to another, he said, follow me. But the man, he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, these are some of the harshest words that we have in scripture. Uh, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What an incredible thing here for this man. Jesus is walking down and gives them the same invitation he gives the apostles. Follow me. And that would mean everything. For a rabbi to say, follow me, is a rab- for a rabbi to say, I see you and I think you can become like me. I think you can do what I do. Come and follow me. An invitation from Christ himself, the Messiah, to follow him. But the man's first reaction is, let me go and bury my father. Now, this is an incredibly reasonable thing to ask at that time. Burying your father was one of the most important things a Jewish man could do. Um, Robert H. Stein writes this, For a Jew, this was a religious duty having precedence over everything else. Only in the case of a temporary Nazarite vow or... If one were the high priest, could one be absolved from this duty? So if you have a Nazarite vow or you're the high priest, your father dies, you can say, I've got work to do. I'm not going to go bury him. Anything else, anything else, you stop what you're doing, immediately go and bury your father. To honor your, your father and your mother was incredibly important. That is the turning point in the Ten Commandments from loving God to loving neighbor. The turning point, the, the, the area where it's blended together and switches is honor your mother and father. And Jesus sees this guy ask this question and says, no. Let the dead bury their own dead. You see, at that time, funerals were a lengthy process, especially for someone who's lost a father. Um, For a funeral at the time when Jesus was around in Israel, it would last seven days, right? They would go the day of, bury the person, bring them to the tomb. Then they would uh, mourn and cry and go through rituals together for seven days. Then people would start to go back to regular life. For the people closest, there'd be another month of mourning, of, of saying specific prayers every day for the person they've lost. But if you lost a father, that mourning process goes on for an entire year. Every day, mourning for that father, saying prayers for that father who's passed away. And at the end of that year, what you would do for a person in ancient Israel is you go back to the body and you would gather the bones and you'd put them in a box, an ossuary. Uh, I have a picture on the next slide here. 
you would gather the bones together, put them in the, the box, and leave them uh, in a specific place in the family tomb. And so this whole process is quite lengthy, right? could be a year. And we don't know at which point this man is coming to Jesus and saying, let me go back and bury my father. Most people try to, to soften what Jesus is saying, but there's no reason to believe that this isn't new, this isn't fresh. And what Jesus is saying is, I know it hurts, I know there's a lot going on, but the kingdom of God takes trump over everything else. You can't be divided here. You have to let go of your family priorities and follow Jesus fully. Uh, the words of Bach, again, in his commentary, discipleship and one's commitment to the kingdom take priority even over family considerations. It's hard to hear. And this is one of the, the statements that most scholars say, this is actually probably something Jesus said because it's so mean, it's, it's hard to say it was made up. But Jesus is making a point here. If you're following him, you can't put your family above him. Following Jesus means being unwavering in your commitment to him. Now, does that mean we have to abandon our families? Absolutely not. But it means we need to be willing to use our family in following Christ and uh, proclaiming the kingdom. You see, what Jesus says to this man, let the bed, let the, let the bed, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. When he says, let the dead bury their own dead, he's saying there's a lot of spiritually dead people out there. And if we want there to be less, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Grieve and use your grief to share with people that there is life after death, that this life is not all there is, that there is an eternal life waiting for them. We need to be willing to use our families to welcome people in, to share the kingdom with them. And he continues. Verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me first say farewell to those at my house. Jesus said to them, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I will follow you, but first let me go and say goodbye to everyone. Again, a reasonable request. In fact, one that Elijah grants to Elisha when Elisha is taken up as the next prophet of Israel. Uh, a sermon, a passage that I got to speak on here a couple of months ago. Let me go back and, and say goodbye. And this time Jesus says, no. No, you, you don't get to do that. And I think what Jesus is doing here is we need to understand that when Jesus meets these three people, these statements to these three people are not universally applicable to everybody that Jesus ever meets. Jesus knows the heart of these people, and he knows what's going to keep them from following him unwaveringly. And so the first, he says, this is not going to be comfortable. If you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to accept that this is not going to be comfortable. To the second, he says, you're always going to put your family above what you're doing here. You can't do that if you're going to follow me. And to this one, he says, you can't go back, because if you go back, you're going to stay. If you go back, you're always going to be looking back. 
if you go back, you're always going to miss what you've left behind, and you'll never follow me forward. What Jesus says here is, is no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of, of God. Uh, N.T. Wright says this when he's talking about this passage. He says, even if what you see is a straight line behind you, the act of looking back will mean the next bit will become crooked. You cannot follow Jesus if your eyes are backwards. You cannot follow Jesus if you're longing for what you've left behind. Whatever you've clung to in your life, you need to leave behind and move forward. Your idea of having the, the best reputation, your idea of being the most successful, your, your plans for having the most money, the lust that you've carried for years, the ideas that you've carried of how the world is supposed to work that go different from the way that God teaches, all of those things you need to leave behind and look forward and not look back. You cannot follow Jesus if you're looking behind you. Now, as we come to the close here of this passage, I want you to notice that Luke does something incredible here. Luke never gives us the response of any of these three men to Jesus. Joel B. Green writes, writes this, Do they embrace his message gladly and join him in the journey? Do they turn away in sadness? These and other responses are possible, but in the end, Luke has left to the reader the responsibility to provide them. No doubt, this is an invitation from the narrator to his audience. How will they, we, respond to Jesus? God has chosen not to record what happens in these situations so that we would be forced to put ourselves into their shoes and say, what would I do? What would I do with such a large ask? And it provides us with an opportunity to ask this, what is holding me back from following Jesus completely? What is holding me back from giving my full commitment to him? What is holding me back from becoming more and more like him? What are the sins that I'm clinging on to? What are the, the hopes and dreams that I'm not willing to let go? Who are the people that I'm most uncomfortable sharing the gospel with? What am I putting above Jesus that's keeping me from fully embracing him? And it's a challenge, us, a challenge for us to think and remind ourselves that anything you cling on to here is going to pale in comparison for what Jesus has for you if you're willing to let it go. This man who wants that comfortability, that notoriety, that status, that success, that man who's clinging on to his family in this temporary earthly place, this man who's unwilling to let go his past, all have invitations to follow Jesus as he sets his face towards Jerusalem, where he's going to die for their sins, where he's going to die for their shame, where he's going to give up his perfect righteousness to take on their sin so that they would follow him, they could sit at his right hand forever, be at his feet forever, worshiping the God who loves them forever. In the kingdom of God, free from shame, free from sin, free from death, free from sickness. 
they get to be a part of what God is doing, expanding his kingdom to those who seem unreachable. And so are they going to let go of what they've had or are they going to follow him? Are we going to let go of what we have or are we going to follow him? Because choosing Jesus means setting our face to Christ. Choosing Jesus means setting our face to Christ. There's nothing else. There's a determination, a seriousness. Things have changed. I'm following Christ into his salvation that he's given me freely. And I don't need to wait another day. I can do that now. And I'm going to become more like Jesus. I'm going to shape my heart to become more like Jesus and listen to the Spirit at work in me. Because I'm focused on Jesus and his salvation that he gives, not just to me, but for everyone. Choosing Jesus means setting our face to Christ. And if we want to do that, then there is no looking back. There's no wavering. And we need to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. Join me in prayer. Worship band, you guys can come up and lead us as we worship our God together. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you sent your son so that we could live. And we pray that you would open our eyes to the beauty of that truth. That you would shape our hearts like yours. And you give us the strength and courage to follow you and share in your work and be a part of your kingdom because of what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.